and welcome to the Maps Canada podcast. I'm your host, Siddharth Rankarua, and today's episode will be capping off our first season of the show. And what could be a more fitting conclusion than our conversation with Dr. Erica Dick. Erica is a Canadian historian and professor of history at the University of Saskatchewan. She's a Canadian research chair and an editor for the Shakruna Institute for Psychedelic Plant Medicines. Recently, Erica's research has focused on the role of women in the history of psychedelic psychiatry. She highlights the importance of thinking about the intersection of gender in psychedelics and incorporating new voices and discussions surrounding gender in the development of psychedelic therapy. Erica joins us to discuss her research on Canada's past with psychedelic psychiatry, the growing awareness of the role women played in the development of psychedelic therapy, the indigenous use of psychedelic plants and protection of their cultural rights, and lastly, the global future of psychedelic plant medicine. As an added bonus, this interview was led by one of our lead volunteers at MAPS Canada, Japrit Matu, who is a PhD student in philosophy at Western University, whose research focuses on the intersection of psychedelics and neuroscience. And without further ado, I give you Dr. Erica Dick. I don't really think you need much of an introduction, but for those who are tuning into this episode and may not know you, Erica is one of Canada's most influential historians. She's a staple figure in not only the history of medicine, psychiatry, and psychedelics, but also a prominent voice in the psychedelic renaissance. And we're going to learn a lot more about who you are and your extraordinary contributions to this area of research. So thank you so much, Erica, for being here today. Thanks, JP, for having me. <laughs> of course. Um, so yeah, I was wondering if you could begin by giving our audience a brief introduction about who you are and particularly how you started researching Canada's history with psychedelics and psychiatry. Sure. Yeah. So I'm a professor and Canada research chair in the history of health and social justice at the University of Saskatchewan. And I started doing research on human experimentation and psychiatric trials in the early 2000s, so almost 20 years ago, I suppose. And I started doing this research. I was really interested in what was going on in terms of um, healthcare reform in Saskatchewan, you know, in the sort of early pre-Medicare phases, but in the building phases of Medicare. You know, how did thinkers, researchers, scientists, how did they invest in a project that was facing a kind of publicly funded healthcare system? And it was in that context that I came across these um, psychedelic trials and I became fascinated by the way that they were sort of flirting with the edges of modern medicine, playing with different ideas of psychiatric disorder, consciousness, but also looking at cost-effective public policy measures using psychedelics in interesting ways to, as part of these larger health reforms. So I've been working on those questions for, you know, that, that was sort of the entry point into it, and I've been uh, following the fascinating history of psychedelics ever since. Right. Yeah. So by the time this episode is released, the interview between you and I, we would have aired the first half of our two-part series on Canada's history with psychedelics. And this, of course, is a topic that you know absolutely everything about. And a lot of the research that we did for this series involves your work. And we're very grateful for that. The breadth and, and scope of information that we got from your research was definitely a lot more than we could even pack into a two-part series. So, of course, we're hoping today you can expand our insight with some more detail about the research you've done over the years. But just to recap, during this first half of the series, we gave an overview of how LSD was introduced into Canada, particularly Saskatchewan, which is where you're from. And a main theme from that history episode was the motive to reform medical, the medical system and mental health care. And I've attended your more recent presentations a couple weeks ago, you did a talk for the University of Winnipeg, I believe, yeah. um, in which you described the reform as a process of community engagement. And you also talked about the family connection in the Saskatchewan. And so I was wondering if you can give us more detail on what that community engagement involved and just how tight-knit that family network was. Yeah, it's something that I wasn't really, uh, I wasn't aware of when I started this research, but it became it became something that I think really helped to drive and, and anchor the research um, environments in Saskatchewan. And that is that 
During the 1930s, a lot of middle-class professionals had left the province during the recession, depression, um, environmental calamities, and, you know, teachers, doctors, lawyers, people were seeking um, seeking employment elsewhere. And the province had kind of, like, um, it lost a lot of these sort of professional positions. And so even amongst the reforms in the post-war period in the 1940s, um, you know, one of the things was attracting people back to this place. And but you don't just bring back like an entire suite of physicians or psychiatrists. So there's a lot of kind of chain uh, migration, if you will, but also that started knitting together with some of the existing infrastructure that was in place, both in healthcare, but also in a whole variety of other um, areas as well. And I think it's one of the things that I, I, I believe is still true in Saskatchewan, and I'm sure other people in other jurisdictions may recognize this too, but Sometimes when you have a smaller community or a smaller space, a sort of smaller group of people working on the same projects, you end up having to do interdisciplinary research. You end up having to work with people across the street, or they are your neighbors, in fact, too. And so I think there was uh, both sort of environmental factors, space issues, as well as the need to invest in these reforms in dramatic ways that allowed people to work together in, in ways that might not have happened in a more... Um, in an environment where there were like, you know, 30 psychiatrists available, but now you have one psychiatrist and this psychiatrist needs help. So he calls the psychologist and the psychologist comes and he brings his wife and his wife happens to be a music therapist. And now you've got like a cluster of people working together. And then, you know, they hire someone's son who happens to have an anthropology degree and they bring in different ways of thinking about consciousness. And one, you know, has a writer this be, I think that kind of organic networking was taking place. And then it also became a bit of a, a magnet or a space that people were drawn to because of this dynamic, interconnected, not necessarily planned research. So I recall hearing stories of someone like Bob Summer, who was a psychologist, um, who drove from Kansas to Saskatchewan. And he said he was he'd never been to this place, but he was so interested in the kind of, you know, the the. Uh, the fertile intellectual energy that he felt was, you know, bubbling up in this place. And he just had to see it for himself. He had to be part of the action. And so it's an interesting way of thinking about building this research enterprise where I think today we often think about, you know, you build an institute because you've got the infrastructure in the first place and you've got the people, but here they're trying to build it from the ground up. Um, and it meant that there were a whole variety of ways that whole families became invested in this kind of research. It's clear this is an interdisciplinary field. And I'm just wondering now, is there anything that we could have learned from that networking from the past that perhaps is missing in today's networking? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think over the past 75 years, we've, uh, you know, when we think about science research, but even any kind of academic research, we tend to be moving more, more and more into our disciplines. Um, and we often are, you know, creating our own languages and methods and that sort of silo us into these different disciplinary spaces. And that has some advantages to specificity and to drilling down into particular concepts. But I think we also lose something in being compelled to communicate across disciplinary boundaries, but also to be to have our perspectives challenged and refreshed by thinking in different ways, not just disciplinarily, but you know, ontologically, philosophically, thinking about different ways of knowing. And I think that's something that the psychedelic renaissance is beginning to push on as well. We recognize some of the ways that breakthrough therapies are coming through in, in uh, randomized controlled trials are also challenging the way we think about measuring those trials. They're also thinking about the economics of healthcare in different ways. We're thinking about patient experiences and anecdotal evidence and how that is shaping public policy or how that is fitting into the public discourse. And all of this, I think, reminds me of like the various different ways that we package information and how we use that to promote, in this case, the psychedelic renaissance and where we're going to go with that. So I think that is an exciting opportunity. And I think, to me, Psychedelics is such an intellectually rich project. It really gives us a lot of space and a lot of sort of vocabulary to begin to think big thoughts and challenge some of the conventional wisdom that we have embedded in these disciplinary spaces. 
in that presentation and um, at the University of Winnipeg towards the end, you you talked about how you love talking about Huxley and Osmond's correspondences through their letters. And, and you can see that change in perspective in, in Huxley's writings. And, and we even noted in that mm-hmm. episode that they met in 1953, I believe. And in one of their letters, it was discovered that Osmond had coined the term psychedelic, which is obviously fascinating because these are the types of stories that people like to hear, the types of historical stories that really paint a picture. Then it's one of the pivotal moments in our history with psychedelics. And you've mentioned that you've gone through those letters. And I think you said there's about 700 pages of them. So other than coining the coining of the term psychedelic, what significance do those letters have in our nation's history? And, and what other stories have come out of them? Yeah, the letters are so incredibly rich. It's uh, it, it'll be hard to do justice to them in a few minutes, but I'll, I'll think of a few examples. And uh, you know, we we started this project thinking, you know, these letters are just, you know, they're fun, they're interesting, and we all there were seven of us working on the project, transcribing them first and providing annotated information. So they're, they're peppered with names and details and shorthand, and so to make sure that readers could appreciate who some of these names and details are, we went in and sort of gave it some more scaffolding. And in the process, I think all seven of us agreed, like we just sort of fell in love with the letters, but also the relationship that really unfolds in these pages. And there are some really, really warm moments where, you know, Aldous Huxley, for one, in one example, he, he and his wife, Maria, in this case, are describing what Humphrey Osman means to them. And they say he's like both a grandfather and a son to them. And they have this beautiful relationship where they, you know, they look up to him, they seek his wisdom, they care for him. And it's such an intimate relationship. Um, you know, uh, Humphrey Osmond names his son Julian after Aldous's brother. He felt that Aldous Osmond would be a difficult name to pronounce, so he, in, <laughs> he used Julian instead. And there are these wonderful warm moments where you just see this beautiful friendship um, growing and, and um, really take sort of the experience of that friendship. But there are also these really interesting, pivotal points of reflection. Now, these aren't published. Um, they're not intending for these to be published. So they're written very candidly. Sometimes, the, especially Osmond, is writing along the sides of the margins. He will draw little things. He shares little anecdotes about how his kids are doing. It's really quite lovely. Um, but they also talk about really important things that are kind of embedded in these familiar letters. Things like how Aldous Huxley is coping with Maria's cancer diagnosis and what does it mean to try to care for someone who is dying and we see today in the context of dying care and end-of-life anxiety associated with psychedelics we see some of the early kernels and these very sort of intimate expressions you know that you can only share with your very close friends about the grief that he feels the burden that he feels of this poor woman suffering through her final stages she has LSD on her deathbed he has LSD on his deathbed. And they start to sort of theorize and, and think about this stuff in these very candid ways. And there are these beautiful moments of thinking about what it means to invest in dying care in meaningful ways. Mm-hmm. Those, I think there are, there are golden sort of um, moments that we can dip into the letters and pull that. But as I, as I mentioned, the, the seven of us working on it, we thought, well, maybe people won't want to read all of these. Like, maybe we should just have a selection. And then we're like, no, it almost reads like a gripping narrative. You can follow this relationship and then all of the kind of um, different ways that they explore avenues of psychedelics, of psychiatric reform, of philosophy. I think our audience can appreciate the depth of analysis that needs to go into this kind of work. And there are many features to our history with psychedelics that that needed to be uncovered and, and still remain to be discovered in a sense. Um, and like you and I agree, we weren't able to tell the whole story. And it's difficult to even do that with our time together. There's so much to the history and there's so many ways to tell the story. Um, one thing that you mentioned in one of our previous conversations is the forthcoming graphic novel that mm. will be published quite soon, actually, and it'll incorporate a lot of your research on psychedelic psychiatry. Can you tell us the title of this novel and some details? Yeah, this is a book called Wonder Drug, 
It's coming out from Between the Lines Press, and it has been done by um, Hugh Goldring and Nicole Burton. Um, there are a couple who have also really brought these tremendous skills of historical narrative writing, or he, write, he writes the texts and Nicole does the illustrations, and they've really brought this story to life. And I think one of the things that I'm just so, so pleased about is they've taken this, they've made it sort of historically accurate, but they've also opened it up in accessible ways. And they've played around with some of the ideas that are harder to capture in text. Like we don't know, you know, what color the dress was of somebody wearing it, but beyond some of the superficial issues, they've been able to really sort of play with um, how people describe their experiences, or they've been really imaginative and clever in bringing some of the, the stories to life in what is essentially a story told in pictures. So I just looked it up again, but it's it's a wonder drug, LSD in the land of living skies. Um, and yeah, we'll we'll link this the website to the publisher and the novel with our show notes. And I highly suggest everyone takes a look. The book is the book looks amazing. I'm excited for it to come out, and I think it's a unique way to share your research and our history. I think with with our history episodes, along with this graphic novel, in particular, we we do get like a more complete story about Humphrey Osmond, who was a leader and a medical professional in this field of work. And you were fortunate enough to have interviewed Osmond in the early 2000s, I believe. Mm. I know, yeah, I know he wasn't doing well at that time, but um, this is a loaded question. So uh, bear with me, but I'm, what stage were you at with your research when you had this interview? And, and what was that interview like? How did it shape your understanding of the history and how you approach the history moving forward? And lastly, are there aspects that are unique to Osmond's work that you see in psychedelic therapy today? Yeah, I, and unfortunately, my interview with him was quite short. He'd had a stroke um, and he wasn't able to communicate clearly. I was, uh, I think I was two and a half years into my research at that time. So I had been fortunate in that I'd been able to spend an entire summer going through letters and materials, publications, correspondence. He writes a lot of notes, so a lot of clippings and notes that he'd written. So I felt quite, uh, I felt like I had, I sort of knew him or I knew some things about him already. And so for me, the the interview itself was really a a sort of personal connection, Um, but I wasn't able to really ask him a lot of questions. He had trouble communicating I've since, however, um, I've since been able to form some relationships with his children and got to know him a little bit through their eyes um, since he died. And uh, But having so many records to go through, I ended up relying much, much more heavily on the records and especially also the compromising condition that he was in when we met. But I interviewed people like Abram Hoffer and Duncan Blewett, um, Sven Jensen, others who had been involved at the time, and it's sort of through their reflections, but also understanding their roles in this history as well. Those interviews, I think it was interesting because at the time that I did them, which was in the summers of 2002, 2003, um, a little bit in 2004, the conversation around psychedelics at that time was not what it is today. I recall especially Dr. Hoffer, Dr. Abram Hoffer, going to his office where he was still doing clinic once a week in his 80s. You know, he sat down and he said, you're not going to believe what I have to say, you know, but, you know, psychedelics were not what you think. They were not abusive. They're not addictive. And he said, people may, you know, I'm not here to defend my reputation. The future will prove that these have been unfairly um, treated. Something I'm paraphrasing here. Um, but it was interesting that he recognized in that moment that there was, and perhaps he was concerned that in that moment, I, as a researcher might come in to say like he was a bad guy doing unethical experimentation. He was kind of clear in his messaging that that's not the case. That's not the history that uh, he feels part of. And he didn't want to participate in the interview in that direction. And we very quickly, you know, disabused him of that idea. But, um, but it was interesting that there was a real reticence, um, a sense from some of the researchers at that time, most of whom were in their 80s, that they didn't really want to talk to me because they were worried that some of the research that had been published until that time showed that LSD was being used by the CIA for mind control. And, you know, there were unethical experiments that were taking place. And that seemed to be the place of LSD in history in that moment. 
they didn't want to participate in those conversations. So I had to coax them a little bit. Although you kind of just started looking into the history of women in psychedelic psychiatry, mm-hmm. that was kind of like your first glimpse into that that whole realm uh, where women were involved. Can you tell us a little bit about speaking with, uh, did you ever get a chance to actually speak with Jane Osmond? Um, I know you, sp- you didn't get a chance, but yeah. you, you kind of, you, you learned a lot about um, Jane through the kids mm-hmm. and even about um, Huxley. He had two wives. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, and it's one of these things that if I were doing it all over again, or if I were advising someone now, you know, to pay attention to these things. And, you know, I've, I've recently kind of I've had these documents in my possession for some time, but rereading them, Osmond talks at one point about, you know, what are we going to do with all of this information? He's talking about like how they recorded these experiences and there's just like people say bizarre things or they're talking about things that don't necessarily make sense or we don't know if we should ascribe meaning to them in the moment. And he's like, well, we should keep everything that people say. And I feel like I, I should have listened to what, or I should have taken that to heart as a researcher myself there's all of these tapes of, you know, hours of recorded interview. And I, I wasn't, I didn't pay attention to everything they were saying. And, you know, as a PhD student, I'm worried about lots of things, time, money, you know, what I got to get this project done. <laughs> You're telling me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I'm looking for the story, right? I'm looking for how to build this story. And I didn't pay as much attention to the way that women were telling me these stories or the way that they weren't. Sometimes they were sitting in the background, you know, adding little bits and details, but they were not the sort of prime narrator. And I wish that I would have paid more attention to that at the time. So I'm trying to, you know, atone for my sins and go back to this research and rethink, you know, what role were they playing both in the historical trials, but also in how this story has been remembered. And I have a really clear memory of um, meeting with Neil Agnew, at his home in Star City, Ontario. And his wife, Mary, and I were sitting in the kitchen listening to Neil being interviewed before a television camera or before a video camera, I should say, for a documentary that I had the pleasure of being able to work with, uh, team on. And Mary was, you know, in there, she's saying, oh, he's going to get this part wrong. He always gets these dates wrong. And she's sort of annotating, but only to me, in an unrecorded space as we're having a cup of tea in the in the room. And she's like, He's not going to say this, but I did LSD with him when he tried that first one. And then I did this, not to undermine what he was saying, but just sort of quietly to the side. And it, it reminds me, you know, it was so wonderful. It was a wonderful connection, but also it kind of reminded me or gave me some insight into how these things were, were going on in the past and how those stories, you know, we've been squeezing out those, some of those details in an effort to try to tell the stories about like, what was the science or how did this trial get um, processed or understood or communicated? And in the meantime, some of this other information has been left to the sidelines. So I'm trying to do a good job of like going back and thinking about, well, what would have happened if Mary wasn't there? And what was Mary doing? And why was it so important that when her husband was unsure of his own judgment, he confided in her? And then his trusted partner was there to help guide him through, or they sort of guided each other through. And that's a story that has repeated itself, or that kind of idea has repeated itself through many of the couples then that I've gone back to sort of revisit. Uh, sadly, I mean, I haven't been able to go back because most of them had, have died since I started this research in the early 2000s. But going back to those interviews, I can piece together little bits and fragments. I believe Andrea Enns is one of your, is she one of your students right now? Has she completed her PhD or is she still a PhD student? I can't recall. Yeah, no, she did her master's with me and she's doing her PhD now at Purdue University with Wendy Klein. Um, and she, yeah, she's written about both Maria Huxley and also Laura Huxley, mm-hmm. uh, two amazing women who were uh, married to Aldous Huxley um, and the roles that they played in, stimulating some of the work that he did as well. And she really beautifully brings that to life. You know, these, these women who are sort of, I don't want to say on the margins, but like, you know, they aren't the central features in this history. Often people know Aldous Huxley and they might know his wife's, his wife's names. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maria, for example, like she had some really amazing networks of a lot of women, um, but not exclusively, but 
people who really challenged, I think, Aldous to think outside the box, even more so than we might think that he already does, because he sort of does, like psychics. Or, um, you know, uh, Eileen Garrett was a close friend, and she was a psychic, and she read mediums. And uh, those kinds of people that I think Maria nurtured those relationships and allowed them to come to a place where they were having dinner parties and able to talk in candid ways about some of these really cool ideas about consciousness. Yeah, I think this part of the interview is going to be really exciting to hear and learn more about the role that women played in the history of psychedelics. And we didn't cover this in the history episodes for multiple reasons. For one thing, as you've previously acknowledged, the topic of women in the history of psychedelic psychiatry is not well covered. There's the exception of the MAPS special bulletin on women in psychedelics edited by Bia Labache, who is the founder and executive director of the Tracuna Institute. You also contributed to this bulletin as well, which was published in the spring of 2019, I believe. And we'll link that in our show notes as well. But other than that, gender and sexuality in the field of psychiatry and psychedelics is a topic that seems to be just emerging. Mm -hmm. And today, we're seeing more of an interest and demand for research that includes women and diversity. Your most recent research involves motivating a conversation about how gender affects our understanding of the past and how it continues to shape the way we study psychedelics today. And you've mentioned that the role of women in the history of psychedelics has been overlooked. So in doing research in, on this topic in the last three years or so, I believe, what, what do you believe we've missed that's important for psychedelic therapy today? Yeah, it's sort of, I'm going to sound like a broken record a little bit here, but you know, this idea of like, we don't know the parts that are meaningful for which moments and like keeping all of that material. I think in some ways it's also a, a, a useful way to think about the way that women have, they've definitely been there. It's not that women were not involved, that women weren't involved in a variety of places and at, at a variety of levels, both from like making key decisions about things like doses or how to deal uh, you know, how to establish the setting. Um, a PhD candidate in France, Zoe Dubus, has been writing about set and setting and the really enormous role that women played in playing with it, thinking about it, theorizing, you know, how do you set up a room to bring about the best, the most positive experiences? And I don't mean positive in the sense that everyone has like a, a happy time, um, but the most therapeutically beneficial moments come from, you know, also calibrating that with a really clear and intentional space mm -hmm. and I think I think this is one of the places where we can take some of that information forward as well and this sort of moves away from your question a little bit but I think that sometimes in the psychedelic renaissance and sometimes in the big headlines we're still seeing this kind of like um, you know, well, what's the scientific evidence or what is the clinical trial data? And it obfuscates or obscures sometimes the kind of many players and the many perspectives and, and parts of participation that go into making that trial data. I won't get into my total critique of the RCT, but I think, you know, things like little, little bits and pieces, little fragments that are harder to capture in a quantifiable way, but, you know, um, nurses who attended uh, patients and subjects going through these trials who were open to holding hands. You know, they held the hand of somebody. They just anchored that person. They brought them back into their body. The ways that patients and subjects, so volunteers and patients, um, who are also volunteers, I guess, in a way, the way that they describe those moments are sometimes so powerful in their own words. You know, I was in the grips of an amazing hallucination and I was terrified. And then Mrs. X, you know, so-and-so came in and held my hand and it brought me, brought me to a safe place. I took the guiding hand. I didn't know where it came from, but I took it and it saved my life. These kinds of things that uh, an entire post-trip report will sometimes sort of revolve around these really key moments and it doesn't even get recorded in the nursing notes. It's not recorded in the trial because it seems so casual or informal or perhaps not important. Yeah. Reminding ourselves to like go back through that data, whether it's historical or today, and think about, well, what parts of this experience have meaning to whom, right? To the different participants in this space. I think that might help us also to think about 
what will be really important when psychedelics are decriminalized, what kinds of spaces, what kinds of attitudes and feelings are necessary to make this a safe and effective experience. Of course, we know who Zoe is. She's a PhD candidate at uh, Aix-Marseille University. Mm -hmm. Hopefully I said that correctly, which is in France. And so she studies the history of medicine and particularly the use of LSD in France and her work, which I think is brilliant. And you've made this very clear in using her research as well. It highlights how a lot of the work that has been done by women in the past has been overlooked. And in most cases, these women's publications have been overshadowed or their ideas have been, as you've stated, taken by other people, uh, codified and institutionalized. And like I said, I think that our viewers will now come to appreciate what some of Zoe's work focuses on, which is the concept of set and setting. So I was wondering if you can tell us more about how that concept came to be, what it is, and how it was established by a network of women whose gender considerations played a role in the therapeutic setting. Yeah. So I guess the sort of textbook definition in set and setting, you know, the story, the, the historical narrative tends to tie this to Timothy Leary, who coined this phrase and who introduced this concept. Um, but I'm going to sort of ignore that for a moment and say that, you know, it wasn't that he was the sort of mastermind be behind recognizing that the set or the environment and the place in which the experience takes place and the setting or the attitude or mindset, he's not the first person to recognize that those things were crucial in a psychedelic interaction. Many people thought about this before, and if we think about it from a kind of Western, Western medicine perspective, early psychedelic pioneers, if you will, um, early researchers working in a Western model recognized this very quickly, you know, that it, you needed to have a comfortable chair. People sometimes had um, overwhelming feelings or very strong feelings, maybe paranoid feelings, making sure that you were in a room that was not a hospital ward with, you know, multiple beds or other people in the room, dimming the lighting because of the vivid hallucinations. You don't want bright lights. Um, they played with strobe lights at one point. That was no good. Having some connection with nature, even if you were in a room, having flowers or plants in the room was something also. They found that people had a lot of, um, sorry, I shouldn't say a lot of, there was some anxiety about like, how am I going to feel? What am I going to do? Am I going to do something crazy? Am I going to reveal something about myself that I'm not ready to have revealed? And so having some kind of distracting but also comfortable features in the room, photographs, music eventually. These features were really critical to optimizing those engagements. And lots of people participated in coming up with different uh, ideas. You know, the rose is the one, uh, one that's often described and a lot of different research units pick this up. But I want to say that, because I'm, I'm, I don't want to talk too much, but I, I do want to say that I think, though, that there's another way of seeing this in stepping outside of that Western framework as well. There were anthropologists and ethnobotanists and ceremonialists who were looking at indigenous rituals and ceremonies, some of which are were definitely a, you know, a straight line to a psychedelic thinking, but also just thinking about ceremony and healing and spirituality in other ways, in other ways of knowing and in other um, ceremonial contexts or ritualistic contexts. Those also rely on a kind of intentionality and a real thoughtfulness about the location of those spaces, the mindset that, you know, there's a lot of fasting that goes on in some cases, um, preparing for the session, both mentally and, you know, creating like, we're going to have a feast afterwards. There's a lot of preparation that goes in, that is involved in creating these moments. And although that's not described so much as set and setting, I think that bringing those worlds together a little bit more, I think anthropologists and ethnobotanists were like, hang on a second, there's like, there's something, you can't just like have a peyote ceremony by yourself, you know, it has a real sort of cadence to it. There's a way of preparing for it and there's meditation involved. And all of those features, I think, also filtered in and became codified in more Western ways. But I think they were influencing some of the ideas around set and setting. And, and I think perhaps in subtle ways, but going forward in ways that we might make more explicit in our 21st century response to psychedelics. As we think back and really imagine how we could harness 
those different ways of knowing set and setting. I can now appreciate how the literature is both underdeveloped and developing at the same time, and how there are many gaps in our current understanding of psychedelic therapy um, in relation to women. For me, it started from hearing about Rick Doblin talk about the role women play in the actual setting of a psychedelic therapy session. Mm -hmm. And then I was introduced to Brian C. Murasaku's best-selling book by a friend, which is called The Key, so the, the immortality key, the secret history of the religion with no name. And for me, it was in this book that someone acknowledged the origin of psychedelic spiritual gatherings being led by women. And I just became more interested in learning about gender influences in psychedelics. And as you and I will continue to talk about, there's there's just so many features and that have been introduced by women. Everything from music therapy, which I know... Stephen Lett has written about, and his work ties into my late supervisor's main area of research, Dr. Louis Charlin, who's a prominent figure in emotions research. And him and I have talked about the role emotions play in psychedelic therapy. I mean, our society has this ill-advised agenda that that men are, um, you know, they're told to keep their emotions hidden and not express their feelings. But a major part of psychedelic therapy is this idea of catharsis which is the process of emotional relief of unrelieved unconscious conflicts. So it raises questions about how, for instance, we can get men to let out their emotions when they've been told otherwise. And this is just one of the areas I found a gap in. Can you tell us some other areas that there there are gaps in? Yeah, I think Stephen Ladd has been, he's amazing. He's here in Saskatoon for the moment um, doing a postdoc. And so we've had the pleasure of working together kind of, although it's COVID, so we don't get to see each other really, but his work in musicology is one of the things that he's helped me to appreciate is um, he was looking at the history of music therapy and the way that music was brought into therapeutic settings, particularly in um, psychotherapeutic settings in his case. And there was, he says that, you know, the father of music therapy would use music as a way, as a kind of adjunct to like, it's on and it's, it's to help people relax. And it's, um, and the goal there was to use music that was familiar so that you weren't distracted by the music, but it was comforting. So it wasn't new enough that you were like, what is going on? What is that? Where's that song going to take me? But you kind of recognized it um, so that it could be soothing. Think like elevator music, right? Like you probably (laughs) recognize the tune, but you're not really feeling like you got to dance or like break into song. It's there. Whereas what he says is, um, people like Hermione Brown and Helen Bonney, who worked with the fellow whose name I'm forgetting now, the father of music therapy, took this to new levels by saying, well, actually, no, you want to connect with that music. You don't want, I'll use elevator music as an example, but you want something that like elicits a powerful emotional response. And you can get lost in the music and let the music sort of help you to feel comfortable still, familiar, but like, there are some orchestral pieces that like if you listen to them and kind of let yourself fall into the music, it can bring you to tears. Mm-hmm. It can help you to actually engage your emotions rather than it kind of helping to numb out the things or, you know, dim the lights, turn on some music. And so they really played with these ideas of using emotionality in music and choosing music that would do exactly that that would help to elicit these feelings and then work with that, sort of help bring that in harmony, pardon the pun, but bring it (laughs) in harmony with the psychotherapeutic session as well. So how do you then time that in a way that you know that when you take this dose of psilocybin or LSD or mescaline, you know, you want the music to also kind of be um, syncopated and calibrated with the kind of timing and the arc of that experience. Not that everyone has exactly the same experience, but there are sort of moments that, you know, you want to bring people to a crescendo and ease them in and ease them out. And it's really beautiful work that he's doing. And I'm learning so much from him because I, as maybe you can tell from my language, I don't know how to speak music. Um, But thinking about the way that they challenged their own profession and were a few women and in a field that's now dominated by women who are really sort of fronting some of these ideas you know saying we need to like tap into the emotionality not use it to sort of like mute that previously when we were when we were talking about 
Maria Huxley, you talked about how some of her friends were psychics and, and mediums. And I, I actually recall from your presentations from one of them, many of the discussions involving the history of psychedelics and women speak of implementing psychics and mediums. And I think a lot of people today would either be surprised. I mean, I was when I heard that uh, to hear that and, and or be skeptical of those features, let alone of the mysticism related to psychedelics, which of course is accepted as a, an indicator of a good therapeutic session. So I'm I'm wondering who who else were the key key women who played a role in introducing these ideas about psychics and mediums, and and how did it how did it actually um, expand into psychedelic therapy? Because it was it was new to me. I wouldn't even think of it today. Is is it still? Do we still see these features in psychedelic therapy? I don't know. I haven't seen them today, which may be you know a blind spot on my part. But I haven't seen this. You know, it, I think that it has both historically and, you know, from today looking back, so at the time, as well as looking back today, I think it was considered a little bit too far on the edge, that there's, you know, there are intersections here with a kind of sometimes new age ideas or philosophies that move outside the kind of Western science frame. And those are always a little bit risky, I suppose. And I think in the Renaissance today, there's also like a, a concerted effort to minimize some of those risks. Like we want this to appear robust. It has good scientific data so that it can move into the sort of mainstream healthcare infrastructure. And, you know, convening with psychics might not be the best avenue for proving to say Health Canada that this is a robust therapy. And nor was it in the past. I think these were they were rich moments in those dinner parties to sort of, okay, let's actually talk about consciousness and let's compare notes on how we describe reaching different states of consciousness or engaging with altered consciousness or altered, I don't even know how to talk about it in psychic language, but like to, to talk to a psychic about like, how do you feel? What, what is consciousness? Those I think are nourishing moments for, for people. And yet I think, they don't become part of the mainstream for a variety of reasons. They're not that they're, they're not dominating the discussion, mm -hmm. but also there's a risk, a political risk in saying, you know, the answer here is that we need to have an exorcism. You know, I, I don't, it, it's a very, it's a very big political gamble to sort of move in that direction and claim that as like the front, the, the front door that we need to go through in order to think about psychedelics in modern society although it may not have merit today, it still opened up a lot of discussions about theorizing about the mind and consciousness. And it, I can see it's still playing a big role in philosophy of mind. Um, and I know, so these are just some of the conversations that are emerging from the past. And not only are you contributing your voice to these conversations, but you're also actively engaging with a lot of the newer voices that happen to be in this area of work. So I'm wondering, what are the more contemporary conversations about women in psychedelics and how is it shaping the way we practice psychedelic therapy? I think there's some really fascinating stuff going on, not only just sort of like acknowledging that women have a role to play as therapists, as guides, as patients, but also sort of listening and leaning into the diversity of experiences that come when we bring different voices to the table in a variety of roles, both as, again, sort of on the therapy providing side, but also on the therapy receiving side. I think that psychedelics in the past has had a, I guess, a problem, I'll say, in um, it has been caricatured as a kind of white, sometimes elite um, experience. And I think that moving forward, some of those challenges, some of those myths um, or realities need to be confronted and broken down. And one of the ways that that's going to happen is um, thinking about, you know, how women experience this, uh, how women articulate their experiences, how they describe those emotions and what they mean to them in ways that don't necessarily match with a sort of codified set of examples. Mm -hmm. and I, I want to just mention too, and I think this is coming up in some of the writing as well, that these are incredibly vulnerable moments and there are cases of sexual abuse. There are cases of transgressions that are beyond a shadow of doubt unethical. And these continue to be, you know, fraught spaces when we, if we don't examine gender in that context, or if we're not thinking we're going to sort of react to 
a gendered um, space that could be dangerous, mm-hmm. then I think, you know, I think we have an opportunity here to be proactive and to recognize that like theorizing gender, emotion, vulnerability, and safety up front, you know, does, I think, provide a better foundation for thinking about exploring diverse perspectives and being prepared then to imagine how will we, as a society, integrate those kinds of diverse experiences. If we take a step back and, you know, we see the wide-ranging features that fall under the scope of the history of women in psychedelics, it's just, it's very clear that today, you know, gender, sexuality, and the, and the presence of women in, in, contem- in the contemporary renaissance, like they can, it can help alleviate a lot of the problems and the gaps that we talked about earlier. And it's, it's fascinating work. I've, like I said, I've been to a few of your presentations and some of the work that you've presented of other scholars has, it's just fascinating stuff. So I was wondering if you can, you can talk about um, other diverse work that you've come across by some scholars and the influence that they've had. Yeah, I'll try off the top of my head and I'll surely miss somebody and, you know, kick myself later. <laughs> Doing this series with Shakruna has been really amazing to, you know, put out these open calls and I've also been, you know, calling friends to try to like bring some of these stories forward. Um, but really, it's been such an honor to work with these amazing scholars who are thinking about new ways of telling, sometimes telling old stories and sometimes telling stories that haven't been told before. Um, So Naomi's work is a great example. You know, she's like, well, I'm not sure I really work on psychedelics. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, but I really want you to tell us about your work because she does this incredible work, which she describes as whispered networks. So women who are protecting information about plant knowledge Um, mostly being used in this case for fertility and for also contraception. And because of the ways in which women's fertility and contraception has often been, you know, banned for talking about and certainly doing anything about and like even having knowledge of that could get you in real trouble. What Naomi is showing us is that there were reasons why women did not want to be identified with, you know, openly, publicly as having sort of secrets or understandings of plants because it could put them in a really vulnerable position with the law. Um, and again, you can sort of trace this back through different centuries and, you know, we can get back to like witch trials, for example. Mm-hmm. But she shows us that there's real a real risk in not recognizing why women want to protect that knowledge. Yeah. yeah. It's not just about telling the stories and saying, aha, women had this knowledge because it can land them in trouble but really thinking about how we tell stories in ways that honor women's knowledge without placing them in a position of, of uh, danger, really. So Naomi's work focuses on psychedelic plants. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this is one of the more vital areas within the history of women and psychedelics that needs to be further explored. And I know a lot of researchers have been looking into this. There's this whole realm of psychedelic plants that involves traditional religious and spiritual concepts. And all of them tend to fall under the idea of personal growth and gaining some type of knowledge. So when I heard about, you know, her her work about the Whispering Network, um, and you've given the reasons why, you've given particular reasons why it was so sacred to have this network of women keep this knowledge to themselves. Do you think that it's been limiting to our current understanding of the use of psychedelic plants? I think so. And I mean, I I'm trained as a historian, so my instinct is to always sort of step back. <laughs> so I think I think it is, um, but also it it gives us an opportunity to step back and ask questions about well, why is that? Is this because women aren't involved? Is this because you know there are reasons why? And what is my ethical responsibility as a historian then to like unearth these stories? What do I, how do I tell them in an ethical way? And they, it reminds me of, there's another post um, about Nancy Turner's work. And um, Nancy's incredibly generous and brilliant ethnobotanist in um, British Columbia. And she, I think she allowed, she generously gave an interview with me, but really she sort of positioned herself as a conduit of all of these different networks of knowledge um, that she's, she shared with me, but it really is on the basis of deep indigenous knowledge about plant medicines and plant uses. And here again, she's, 
she was very clever in explaining this in a way that helped me to understand that, you know, identifying, you know, indigenous psychedelic plant knowledge and, and putting that into the, it's a very kind of harsh or blunt framing that psychedelic experiences aren't psychedelic experiences. They might be transitional experiences at a time of life or right. at a time of healing. And so the psychedelic is a means to an end. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, capturing that and trying to tell a story and saying like, this is a psychedelic story misses the meaning of that psychedelic moment in the context of a transition story or in an indigenous knowledge network or in an effort to protect, save, conserve um, indigenous plant knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so it's helped me to think, and I hope uh, it's inspired me to sort of step back and think about, well, what is the utility or what is the benefit of describing these as um, a psychedelic moment as opposed to like a gender transition moment? Or, you know, we can think about the different frames that we put on this that doesn't take psychedelics out, but maybe repositions it to think about, well, what is what is the more important um, priority of, of meaning here? Yeah. Oh, I, I, I just I love that you said that, because one of the things that I just got out of that was this idea of knowledge networks. And like you said, you don't need to take psychedelics out of it. Maybe we need to think about certain things differently. And the whole point of having these knowledge networks, which I think is just the whole idea of. Um, taking this quote from my supervisor, Jacqueline Sullivan, she is doing research on epistemic communities in neuroscience. But I see that now. I see that in this whole realm of psychedelic science, psychedelic research, therapy, this network. And there's just so many. It's an interdisciplinary field. There's so much knowledge we can gain from different perspectives. And there's just this pluralism, this pool of knowledge coming from like I said, the psychedelic plants in general and the indigenous work that goes behind it. And I think that there's just, that is a really big gap in our, in our understanding of psychedelics right now. And um, while we are on this topic of psychedelic plants and the knowledge networks, I want to finish off our interview by talking about your involvement with the Trakuna Institute of Psychedelic Plant Medicines. Because much of what we've talked about today has been an ongoing project between you Bia Labache and others after Bia had reached out to you to host the series with the Institute on the History of Women in Psychedelics. I think this institute embodies the gravitas that's leading the historical sources into present day voices. And I can see this emergence in a network of powerful women. And might I add, not just women, scholars in general who are sharing their research and creating this platform. Uh, that's not only reclaiming a space for women in psychedelics, but it's just changing the way society thinks about women as pioneers in, in psychedelic history. And this is the motive of your work. And I'm, I'm seeing it happen. And it's amazing. So I was wondering if you could finish by telling us a little more about the Chakuna Institute and the global network that's been created along with the exciting developments coming out of the Institute. Yeah, I'd love to. And um, you know, I, I would refer your listeners and your audience to the website to make sure that uh, my narrative is correct, because I'm a new member. I've been working officially with uh, Shakuna for about the last year. Um, and you're right, uh, you know, Bia reached out and asked whether I would um, help to put this series together. And it's been just a wonderful honor. And like I said, I'm just so pleased and excited and inspired by meeting with and sort of cultivating relationships with all of these new scholars, but also reaching out to women who I think have made a difference in the past and continue to make a difference today, but also trying to, you know, use this as a moment to reflect back. You know, you were, you know, people like Maria um, Mangini, who've been really instrumental in like pushing this agenda for years and years. And, you know, having the luxury of sitting with her and like reflecting on, you know, where she sees changes, where she sees developments. And um, so it's kind of, it's been really, like I said, it's been a real honor. So Shakruna is, I, I agree. I think it is a leading light. It is a leading sort of chorus of voices um, that are helping us to think through some of the cultural dynamics that are at stake in a psychedelic Renaissance, not to cleave out the science, but to think about, you know, how science and culture interact, how they intersect. And from a sort of disciplinary um, way of describing that, it's kind of, you know, the social sciences and humanities of the psychedelic renaissance. And I think that's really important because one of the features that I think historically is true is that 
the science wasn't a problem with psychedelics, but the the way that it was applied in policy, in health, and in culture, the the sort of journalistic responses, and all of this kind of you know created a clash. And so there's a real communication problem with psychedelics, both historically, and I think the potential is for that to continue to this day. That even if psychedelics become decriminalized, even if Health Canada says it's okay to take this with your physician, that still doesn't address many, many, many of the issues when it comes to thinking around harm reduction, thinking about gendered experiences, thinking about diverse experiences, thinking about, you know, how are we going to now teach children, teachers, police officers, social workers, how do we talk about psychedelics in a decriminalized space? And those are cultural questions and require cultural answers Bielabache's vision for Shakruna and the incredible people that she has assembled um, is really, I think, the player in this conversation. She's got deep, deep roots, of course, in Brazil, her where she's um, where she grew up, um, but also throughout all sorts of parts of Latin America. There's uh, Shakruna Latin America now as well. We just launched Shakruna Canada this year um, just to try to like extend this conversation in north, south, south, north ways to break out of those jurisdictional spaces, which are important. It's important that Health Canada has its own you know, responsibilities, but also so that we can learn from each other across linguistic, cultural, religious, um, a, a diverse set of experiences, and that we can think about sort of fronting cultural issues, reciprocity issues, indigenous justice issues. We can think about them, that they're clear and present. They're not an afterthought. It's not decriminalize this and then we'll clean up the mess. It's integrating diverse voices and social justice perspectives from the foundation so that, you know, we can move forward in a progressive way that is going to, you know, I, I hope be much more sustainable for a psychedelic future. Right. Yeah. And and of course, we'll we'll provide a link to the Chakruna Institute along with the show notes for for anyone who's interested in learning more about the groundbreaking work being conducted at the Institute. Uh, you talked about how the Institute has been expanding and it's expanded into Canada now. I was actually wondering if you can talk about the global history of psychedelics and the book that's coming out from the Institute that I'm I'm looking forward to that. I think that as you've said, that it's going to take historical data to show how psychedelics have been used and, and understood and misunderstood in a variety of contexts at a global perspective. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah, it's funny. It's very, very early days, but um, my co-editor, Chris Alcock, and I are um, we're, we're collecting papers right now for a book with MIT Press, which we're tentatively calling A Global History of Psychedelics. They might have some subtitle in the future. Um, right now we have 22 authors lined up and they represent a variety of different sort of historical geopolitical jurisdictions, but also different ways of thinking about how psychedelics have moved around, um, how different psychedelic ideas have also tra uh, traversed different spaces. So sometimes in ways that, um, you know, might be an appropriation of ayahuasca shamanism or medical tourism associated with this that creates uncomfortable trade-offs. You know, there are conservation concerns, but there's also, you know, opening minds to different religious practices. Um, and, and we want to really, like, probe these issues in ways that decenter the story from um, the United States and Canada. Uh, those stories, I think, are a little bit well more well-known. And so our goal here was to privilege authors who pushed us outside of those boundaries. So we have authors looking at India, Burma, China, uh, several in Europe, France, uh, Czechoslovakia. Um, we have people looking at a few different ways in which um, African plants were being brought into a psychedelic network, but also taken out of a psychedelic network in ways that sort of fit in with a sort of global colonialism or global narrative around colonialism, but also show these transnational ways that plants were moving around the globe and how they took on different meanings in different spaces. Yeah. We've yeah. only got a handful of papers in so far, but maybe you can tell from, I'm so excited. There's some really incredible work coming, and I hope that, uh, you know, a year from now we'll have had, we'll have all the papers in, and or, you know, what, what, some, some papers are going to be slowed down for COVID reasons, but um, I'm really excited to start thinking about 
to, to put authors in conversation with these larger questions about, you know, a psychedelic past that is not, doesn't have its origin story necessarily in Basel, Switzerland or in yeah. Weyburn, Saskatchewan, but that these are part of a bigger kind of moment of awakening, a moment of thinking about psychedelic thoughts, whether the word is the right one or not. <laughs> Doing the history episodes, that research took us a few months, actually. Mm-hmm. And I was so fascinated by Canada's history. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe Canada was a leading research. Like Canada was leading the research in psychedelics for, you know, almost 20 years. And then you trace it back and you, you like you said, you go to Switzerland where LSD came from. And then, and then I was like, wait a second, there is a whole world of psychedelics, especially psychedelic plants that were utilized. And here I am, you know, just getting excited over what was happening in Canada, forgetting that at the same time, this was happening all over the world. And then it comes back to this idea of knowledge networks and epistemic communities. And just, there is a vast amount of knowledge that can continue to be gained if we start, you know, getting contributors from around the globe to share their stories. And I'm looking forward to this book. I'm so excited for it. Uh, I think you said there was about 22 contributors from around the globe. And then you think about, like you said, like India, Tibet. Mm-hmm. I would never even have thought of those countries, you know, having a presence with psychedelics. And, and I think everybody is going to be in for a lot when this comes out. I'm super excited about it. Um, I, I don't have any other questions for you. I was wondering if you wanted to uh, talk about anything in particular or if you wanted to share anything else. There was one question that you asked me that I don't think I answered. And I thought if I could remember, I will say it now. But I think you said um, something about what would Osmond, what were uh, something that Osmond thought was important. Um, oh, gosh, now I can't remember how you phrased it. But it was like, oh, what do you think are a lesson that hasn't been taken up or something like that? Yeah, you've had very intimate conversations with his family mm-hmm. and you had the one interview with him. So, and and you even said while you were doing, within two and a half years of doing the research, you felt like you knew him. And I think, mm-hmm. I, I don't feel that way after reading your stuff. Obviously, it's because I've merely read your work. You were the one who did the nitty gritty stuff. Um, so is there anything from his research or just like his, who he was, his persona, his, his endeavor that, that you think has been carried forward to today that we do see today, or perhaps we don't see today. And you're, you think hey, we, we need to take that aspect of Osman and, and bring it to today. I think there's a lot of, he had a lot of ideas and was sort of like, um, you know, I've, I've, my sense of him, although his children don't share this sense, so I, I'm probably wrong. Um, but it, when it comes to these ideas, he's like just sort of brimming over. He's writing things all the time. He's clipping things out of the newspaper or out of magazines and writing notes all the time. So he's just like full, full, full of ideas. Not all of them, of course, have come to fruition and maybe not all of them are gold, gold ideas either. But something that I think, you know, if I could travel back in time and have a conversation with him, you know, in his kind of 1950s headspace, he and Abe Hoffer and others who are working in this, but outside of Canada as well, I think, I think something that psychedelics we we might see on the horizon, and I don't know. This is this is just my speculation. I think the way that scientific evidence is produced and the way that it is um, measured and applied to it, in a fashion that rec- sorry, let me try that again. I think that the way that scientific evidence is produced and communicated in order to create sort of policies that are allegedly evidence-based policies based on scientific information. I think that's changing. Mm -hmm. And I think that psychedelics have a role to play in changing the way we think about where we emphasize the bits of evidence and how we assign meaning to the evidence that we accrue in scientific settings or in therapeutic settings. And for example, I think it's very difficult, and this is something that a lot of psychedelic researchers struggled with, it's very, very difficult to take that anecdotal information that people have these incredibly individualistic experiences and to now like chart that out and say, okay, at minute four, you will experience this. It's not replicable in the same way. It's hard mm-hmm. to standardize. It's hard to check that against a placebo. It doesn't fit neatly into 
the kind of trial environment that allows for the rich complexity of the psychedelic experience to really come through. We can test certain things for sure, but we miss a lot, I think, in squeezing it through a particular methodology that doesn't allow for it to flourish. He argued about this in the past, and I do think that there is something, he's certainly not alone, as I say, but I'll use his papers because they're the ones that I, I read. I think there is something to be said for how we assign meaning or efficacy in a drug trial environment that psychedelics have the potential to disrupt, to get us to think differently and to move outside of the current sort of um, conventions. The risk, uh, we, we still have to balance safety and risk and risk assessment in this case. But I think there's an opportunity to sort of open those doors and rethink how we evaluate trauma, pain, experience, and then what we do about it. Erica, I'd like to thank you again for joining us. I'm over the moon about having the chance to talk to you about this topic. And I'm really excited to read more about your work and what comes out of the Institute. Um, You're an inspiration to me. And I speak for many others when I say that. And we look forward to having you be a part of the show in the future. Thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure talking with you about this. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this discussion between Dr. Erica Dick and Japrit Matu. Once again, this episode marks the conclusion of our first season on the MAPS Canada podcast. I want to thank all of the volunteers who had a hand in putting this first season of the show together. I'd also like to thank our listeners around the globe who joined us along the way as we brought this show to its feet. I'm Siddharth Rankarua, and I look forward to joining you all again in the fall for the second season of the MAPS Canada podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the MAPS Canada podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review and sharing it with your network. MAPS Canada is a registered nonprofit charity. We rely entirely on the generosity of our supporters to fund our projects and research. You can support us by becoming a monthly donor or by making a one-time tax-deductible donation at mapscanada.org donate. Or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved in our work, please visit our website at mapscanada.org. As always, this podcast is brought to you by our team of dedicated volunteers, and we appreciate your support. It goes a long way in our efforts towards the legalization of psychedelics and ensuring their access as safe medicines for all Canadians. This episode was produced and edited by Brendan Campbell. Original music and audio engineering by Andrew Illman. I'm Siddharth Rankarua, and thanks for listening.